Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. On these interesting travels that Gail and I have had the privilege of making through the years, she's discovered that it's really difficult for me to pass by a church. I like to go into churches. And we've been in great cities where you see cathedral churches. We're in Salzburg. They have a magnificent cathedral there. They also have a really beautiful university church, and we visited that one as well. In Munich, one of the buildings that was not bombed to the ground by Allied bombers in World War II was the magnificent cathedral in Munich. But on our recent trip, we were in a lot of small towns because the concentration camps, as a rule, were not built close to big metropolitan areas. Dachau is an exception. It's right on the outskirts of Munich. But the others were built outside small towns. So we were in places like Oranienburg, uh, Cella. Uh, Flossenburg, Weiden, Erfurt, and so on. And the churches were much smaller. Uh, down in Switzerland, in Grundelwald, and Lauterbrunnen, and Muren, the churches were very small. But I like small churches, too. I pastored two small churches for six years. I grew up in a small church for 18 years. So I like the big ones, and I like the little ones. I don't have to stay long, as a rule. Occasionally, if they're really outstanding works of art, I will, but not very long. I just enjoy going in and looking around, sometimes just sitting and being very still and quiet to imagine what it's like to worship with the hundred people that would fill this little church or the 2,000 people that would fill this magnificent cathedral. I'm always interested in the organs, and most churches in Europe have organs, even the little ones, how the pipes are configured and so on. And I'm always interested in the hymn books. What do the people sing? And almost never does one pick up a hymn book in any of the Christian denominations that one does not find Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. What makes grace so amazing. If you still have your Bible open from the second reading this morning, to understand these few verses that we read together from chapter 5, you have to understand what's been going on in chapter 4. Paul didn't write in chapter and verse. He wrote a letter. And so his argument leading up to this portion we call chapter 5 is about Abraham and Sarah. If you were to go ask Rabbi Charles Sherman, Rabbi Mark Fitzerman, our dear friends, when does Judaism begin? They would say, with Abraham and Sarah. That everything before Abraham and Sarah is really an attempt to explain the origin of things. In the beginnings, the Hebrew scriptures began. In the beginnings, God... And then you have those first ten and a half chapters about how all things came to be as they were when Abraham and Sarah came along. 
Abraham and Sarah were nobodies. I remember on one of our trips to Israel, a hot, hot afternoon, we'd been down in the, in the Jordan River Valley, well below sea level. It's 110 degrees down there. The bus is ascending now toward Jerusalem. And suddenly the guide says to the driver, pull over, pull over. He pulls over beside this beautiful new highway. And she asks everyone on the bus, would you like to meet Abraham and Sarah? And everybody looked out the window. And there was a, a tent, a very black tent in 105 degree weather with a family tending sheep and goats. And she said, I'd like to introduce you to my father, Abraham, my mother, Sarah. This is the way they've been living for the last 3,000 years. Abraham and Sarah lived in a little nowhere place called Ur, the modern-day Iraq, in the Chaldean Mountains near the confluence of the Tigris-Euphrates rivers. They were old. They'd been married for years and years, trying unsuccessfully to have a baby. Both had finally decided we're never ever going to be parents when God came by. And God said, how would you like to have a son? How would you like for this son to be somebody who would help establish a whole new community of faith, a whole new nation? And they both decided they would like that very much. God told them to roll up their beds, pack up that black tent of theirs, and move several hundred miles, and they went. Sarah was not morning sick the next day, nor the next year. Several years passed before that long-awaited son came. But all those years later, 2,000 years later, Paul's still talking about them. That they trusted God. God said... I know who you are. I care who you are. I care about your present. I care about your future. Let me help you. And they trusted that they had the good favor of God. Since we got home, I've been trying to catch up on all my reading. Mail was stacked about two feet high on my desk, and I worked through that as quickly as I could. At home at night, after making evangelism calls, I've been catching up with the magazines and newspapers. In three of the major magazines to which I subscribe, there was a review of a play that's on Broadway right now called Waiting for Godot. It's receiving a lot of press because Nathan Lane and John Goodman have decided to be in this play. This Samuel Beckett play has not been on Broadway in years and years it first was staged in Miami, Florida, 55 years ago. At the end of the first act, more than half the audience walked out and did not come back. And the next morning, there was a long line of people waiting to redeem their tickets because of the reviews they had read in the morning paper. Samuel Beckett has written a play about four bedraggled-looking old men who sit around and talk about how meaningless life is. And in fact, the reviewer in the New Yorker magazine said, Samuel Beckett is trying to tell you that the only meaning you will find is discussing with others your meaninglessness. Is that where you are? That's not where I am. 
that's not where Paul was. That's not where he believed the church at Rome was. It certainly is not where Judaism is. The Jews and we Christians believe that God knew Abraham, knew Sarah, really wanted good things to come to them, knows you and wants really good things to come to you. Waiting for Godot says, wait as long as you want. He isn't coming. And we say he is. He has. He does. And trusting that that is so is counted right with God. Number two, Paul then says, for all you Gentile Christians in Rome to whom I'm writing, this has never been made clearer than in Jesus our Lord, who was crucified for our trespasses and raised to glory by God Almighty. To trust that in Jesus Christ God did so love the world, and not just everybody in the world, but every person in the world, no one more than the other, no one less than the other. Love them all. For 17 days, I didn't see an English newspaper. We got on the plane in Zurich to fly home, and we'd barely gotten off the ground when the flight attendants were passing up and down the aisles asking if we'd like a newspaper. One of them was in English. I said, I would love a newspaper. And so I've virtually devoured the thing. You don't realize how much you miss a newspaper till you don't have a newspaper. And for two and a half weeks, we'd not had a newspaper that we could read. Now I could read one. And so I read paragraph by paragraph, column after column. There was a long article there about a fellow named Christopher Purvis. I'd never heard the name. Now, some of you rock and rollers may know this name. He was one of the lead singers for Harvey and the Wallbangers. You familiar with them? I'm not familiar with them. Heard the name, don't know anything they did. But this author, he knew all about Harvey and the Wallbangers, and he was interviewing Christopher Purvis. But he was not really talking so much about that rock group as he was talking about Christopher Purvis's new job. This summer, he's singing the role of Falstaff in the opera Falstaff. And the author said to him, well, that's a long stretch from Harvey and the Wallbangers. And Christopher said, yes, of course it is a long stretch, but that's not where I was taught how to sing. Oh, where was that? And he said, I was taught to sing by being a chorister at King's College, Cambridge University. The Panseras have studied there. It is the lessons and carol service from King's College, Cambridge, that we pattern every year during our Advent season. And Christopher Furvis said, singing with Harvey and the Wallbangers, even singing opera, is very different from singing with the choristers at King's College. At King's College, you are taught to sublimate yourself. His word, I underlined it twice in the article, to sublimate yourself for the glory of the greater. To come to faith in God through Christ Jesus is to know that one is not loved because one is good, but because God is good. Not because of anything we can do, have done, will do, but because of what God has already done a long time ago 
and then continues to do again and again, to want good to come to you and to grieve with you if things are not so good for you. Okay. Number three. One of the scholars I read this week said, the real key to this passage is the peace of God. Ernst Kazemann, one of the great German scholars, said, this is a Semite, a Semitic expression, which has to do with shalom. Shalom means more than peace. It means literally well-being. So in fact, he said, this is the whole concept of salvation. Salvation, being set right with God, that is, accepting the gift of God's love. God loves you because that's who God is. God wants good to come to you because that's who God is. Will you receive God's gift? Will you trust that that is so? That God favors you, wants good to come to you? Will you receive that gift? If you will, then you have peace with God. The strife and enmity between your will and God's will is done away. You can seek with all your heart to do it God's way. In one of my old New Yorker magazines I was looking through the other night, there was a story about an experiment at Stanford University 40 years ago. I remember having to study that when I was taking a psychology course. There was a school in Stanford University called Bing, the Bing School. There were preschoolers enrolled, and some of the professors at Stanford were trying experiments from time to time with these little preschoolers. One of them involved a little four-year-old named Carolyn. I kept trying to imagine our little four-year-old granddaughter, Dylan Nicole. What would she do if they led her into a room where there's just a little desk and a chair, and a big, plump marshmallow on the desk. And the testing professor says to her, Now, Carolyn, you can eat this marshmallow any time you want. But if you will not eat it until I come back, you can have two. They had a camera mounted up in the ceiling of this little room. The professor left. And little Carolyn was sitting there in her chair, staring at that marshmallow. She covered up her eyes. <laughs> then she would peek. And then she would cover up her eyes. She put her hands in her lap. She put her hands up on the desk. But she sat there 15 minutes until the professor came back and gave her two. Her brother Craig was also in the Bing School. They led Craig into the room, said, now, Craig, you can eat this marshmallow right away, but if you'll wait till I come back, you can have two. Craig gobbled his down right away. <laughs> well, this article in the New Yorker magazine was an appraisal of what's happened to those children who had the marshmallow test 40 years ago. You want to know what happened to Carolyn? She was an honor student all the way through school. She went to Stanford University and was graduated. She got a PhD from Princeton. She's a university professor. Craig, he's bounced around from job to job and battled alcoholism and drug addiction a good part of his life. 
One of the professors said, you know, 40 years ago, I would have bet that the key indicator for a person's success is native intelligence. I've changed my mind. There's no doubt that native intelligence is important, but I believe a bigger factor is delayed gratification. Persons who are able to delay gratification for a greater good. Most of the places Gail and I stayed, there were sometimes one channel, sometimes two on television at night in English. CNN and occasionally BBC. And when we'd get into the room, I'd turn on the television and these two, didn't matter which one you turned to, were telling the same things over and over and over. And if you watched till 9.30 or 10 o'clock, they told the same stories over and over and over. And all of it was about hurt and pain and hurt and pain and hurt and pain and starvation and sickness. And Gail said, is it never going to get any better? The Reinhold Niebuhr, Richard Niebuhr brothers, debated that scholastically in the 30s and finally agreed they would be pessimistic in the short run and optimistic in the long run. We are impatient and ought to be about justice and righteousness for all God's children, but we can be patient with the Lord. The Lord is going to win and the Lord's children are going to be victorious. There was a great article in the Tulsa paper this week about the KIPP school. The KIPP school, it's right on the edge of the campus, Booker T. Washington. Uh, I had opportunity to go through that school to have lunch there a few months ago. I was really impressed both with the administration and the teachers and the students. KIPP school was begun by two young Jews down in Houston, Texas, two young men. They were both teaching in elementary schools in Houston, Independent School District. It has a lot of problems. And they kept thinking there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. And they began the first KIPP school. And there are now more than 60 of them scattered across the country. We have one here in Tulsa right now. It demands much of these children and their families. They go to school at 730. They don't get out to 530 in the evening. They go 10 hours a day. They have to do homework. They have to try really hard. You can tell 7th graders from 8th graders from 9th graders because of what they wore. I mean, there was a certain shirt that, and a certain color that 7th graders wore and a different color for 8th graders and 9th graders and so on. Administrators, teachers could tell immediately if a 7th grader wasn't where he or she was supposed to be and so on. And every time they stood up, they talked about, they were to answer and respond to any question asked of them. It's about family. It's about school. It's about family and about school. You know one of the mottos of the KIPP school? Don't eat the marshmallow. Don't eat the marshmallow. Be patient. Delay gratification. Better things are yet to come. Number four. We boast in our hope in the glory of God. And then just four or five lines later, he says, and hope will not disappoint us. We hope that we shall share 
in the glory of our God and of his Son, our Lord Jesus, and hope will not disappoint us. I was reading a, a review of a movie playing now in Tulsa called Barking Water. This movie was uh, written, produced, directed by a Tulsan. His name is Sterling Harjo. He made this movie just a little over a year ago, uh, right here in Oklahoma. Didn't have a lot of money. Uh, made the whole thing in about three weeks in communities ranging from Ponca City down to Weewoka. It's a story about an aging Native American here in our state who wants to go home. He knows it's time to go home. He's in a small community hospital. But the only way he can get out and go home is to have his estranged wife, Irene, come and get him. And the question is, will she or not? Will she go and get this man who's been her husband all these years, but with whom she's not living at the present time? She does go and get him. It's sort of a road movie. What happens to them? They reflect upon good times and bad, some really wonderful times and some not so good. But I liked several lines of Michael Smith's review, and they were these. For Sterling Harjo, when he says that this lead character of his is going home, it means he's about to die. And second, he doesn't want to die in a small hospital among strangers. He wants to die surrounded by people who love him. Paul is saying, how would you like to go home with Jesus leading you by the hand and the God of Abraham and Sarah flinging wide the gates? Amen.